All right, we're going to finish up John 15 and head into 16 tonight. Remember, we are not meeting next week. There's no midweek uh, activities at the church next week because of spring break. I'm excited because my wife and daughter will be off school, their teachers, and then my son's coming home from college. So uh, I was just telling somebody, we may not leave the house. We'll just be happy to be together. Um, but some of you know the movie Dances with Wolves. A uh, story of, I'll remind you, since most of you probably know the story, uh, an American army officer, cavalry officer in the Civil War commits an act of heroism, and as a reward, they tell him, you can be posted anywhere you want. And he says, I want to go on the frontier before it's gone. And they send him out onto this lonely outpost at the frontier in, in the fields up there in the, the northern plains, and when he gets to his fort, there's nobody there. All the soldiers who were posted there have gone AWOL or been killed, he can't tell. Uh, so he stays there for a while and over time starts to befriend the local tribe of Sioux Indians. In fact, he becomes such good friends with them, he eventually leaves the fort and moves in with them and lives in their village. Now there's a scene about halfway through the movie where there's this rival tribe that's getting ready to invade their village. And we've already seen in the movie, this tribe is brutal and aggressive and violent and it doesn't look good for our friends. And that's when Lieutenant Dunbar, the, the main character, remembers he's got a whole bunch of rifles back at the fort. The soldiers who were there before him just buried all their rifles in the ground. So he goes over and he digs them all up. And then there's a scene where you see him teaching those warriors how to shoot because none of them have ever handled a gun before. They've only used bows and arrows and, and spears. And so he just teaches them meticulously how to shoot. Now the day of the battle arrives and the first thing you see is the enemy uh, warriors running into the camp and one of the Sioux warriors, the first one out, takes his gun by the barrel and hits his opponent in the head with the stock like it's a club. And Lieutenant Dunbar set, grabs it from him and says, shoot the gun. And I always think about that story. I always think about that scene when I think about the Holy Spirit. Because to me, that's a great image of one of the reasons why the church is not effective today, as effective as it should be. It, why we don't see the kinds of things happening in today's world in the church that we saw in the time of Acts. And I'm not even talking about the miracles. God can do miracles anytime He wants, but I don't, we don't necessarily need to see people laying hands on others and seeing them healed in order for the Spirit of God to be moving and for people's lives to be changed. Why aren't we seeing more people's lives being changed? I think a lot of us aren't, we don't understand how to use the Holy Spirit. Now, the only problem with that analogy is it makes it sound like the Holy Spirit is a tool when it's actually the Spirit of God Himself. And look in the Bible, whenever the Holy Spirit is spoken of, it's spoken of as a He, not an It. It's not an impersonal force. It's God in spirit form. But I, I've learned that a lot, a lot of, among a lot of Baptists, there's kind of a, an ignorance about the Holy Spirit, a, a lack of understanding and maybe even interest. It seems kind of mysterious. It seems, oh my goodness, Pentecostal, so we don't want to touch that. So, so I think it's important for us to look at what the Scriptures say. Now remember, this is Jesus talking to His disciples just before He's arrested, just before He is tried and crucified. He knows He's only got a little bit of time with them and then He'll be gone. And so if you knew you only had a few hours with the people who were most important to you, you'd make sure you talked about the most important things. And that's why we're calling this origin story. It's, it's Jesus telling his disciples and us, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means 
to follow me and live out my, my faith. So we're going to start with verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So we've talked about this before, but if you think, if you picture the farewell discourse, that's what we're studying. Jesus' last words to his disciples, picture it as a bullseye where the center is the most important. The center is the, the main point Jesus is trying to make, and then everything else is in rings around that. So, for instance, in John 14, 16, he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says two things about the Holy Spirit, and these are on your notes. He says, I'm going to send you another helper. And the word helper, in my Bible it says helper, in your Bible it may say something else. In Greek it's the word paraclete. There's not really a word for it in English. Not, a, not an exact one-to-one -one word. It, it literally means one who comes alongside. It, it's like if you're carrying something heavy and you're not going to make it and somebody walks up to you and says, let me take that. And you say, thank goodness. Or if, if you're lost and somebody comes along and says, you want me to show you where to go? Has that ever happened to you? You're walking through a, a hospital, for instance, and they make those like mazes and you see a doctor or nurse and they say, can I help you? And you realize, well, I have that lost look on my, on my face. That's someone who comes alongside you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Jesus promised in 14, 16, uh, in, the, in chapter 14, verse 16, I'm going to send someone to you after I'm gone. And then in the second thing he said about the Holy Spirit in 14, verse 26 is, he's going to remind you of all the things I've said. And don't you think that was a relief to those apostles? Because Jesus had said so many things much more than we have written down in the Gospels. Things that we don't have any record of, that ought to make you feel kind of tantalized, right? I can't wait to get to heaven and talk to the disciples and find out what I didn't know. But the good news for them was, you don't have to know it all, because the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance when you need it. Now, that was back in chapter 14, and then from there he moved to the main point, the center of the bullseye, which is, I am the vine. Chapter 15, I am the vine, you're the branches, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the main point of this whole talk. So if you picture a bullseye, the outer ring, you're going across the bullseye, and you get to that, that innermost ring, and it's the Holy Spirit. And you get to the center, and it's I am the vine. And then you come out of the center, and you're into that innermost ring again. So Jesus starts up with the Holy Spirit again. And here's what he says. He says three more things. And the first one is something he said in that passage we just read. He says, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will enable you to overcome persecution. So verses 26 and 27, last two verses in chapter 15, they show us the way that God works through us. They show us the way God chooses to accomplish His work on earth. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if God does something on earth, it is almost always through human beings. There are stories in the Scriptures of angels doing things, but almost always, the angels aren't performing the actions. The angels are bringing the message. They're encouraging. They're saying, here's what you need to do. In fact, the word angel means messenger. So God doesn't send his angels to accomplish his work on earth. He accomplishes it, and he accomplishes it through us. 
And how does he do that? He sends the Holy Spirit. And again, back to that imperfect analogy of a man holding a rifle and defending his home, his property, his land. It takes two things. It takes that gun that gives the power, but it also takes the human being to wield it. Again, not a perfect analogy, but that's how God chooses to do his work. We have to be willing to wield the Holy Spirit, and we have to have the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish anything. That's how God accomplishes work on earth. Now, another reason that analogy isn't perfect, it makes it sound like the Holy Spirit is dependent on us. It makes it sound like we're more important than we actually are. One of the things I love about this passage is it shows us that God can use anyone. He used the disciples even though they didn't seem qualified at all. Think about in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And those seven letters to the seven churches. Something comes up over and over again in those letters to those churches. Jesus says, listen, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to come take away your lampstand. What is he saying? He's saying to each one of those churches, I love you. I planted you here. I've got plans to use you. But if you don't, use, if you don't do my will, if, if you don't allow me to work through you, I'll take away your lampstand. I won't work through you anymore. I'll use someone else. So don't get the impression when we talk about how the Holy Spirit works through human beings that, oh, well, I guess he needs me. No, because if he doesn't, if you don't choose to do the will of God, he'll use someone else. And we as a church need to realize that if we're not going to be a church that is led by the Holy Spirit, he'll use another church. And goodness knows there are plenty of churches he can use. So that's a humbling thing to, to realize. Now, in verse 1, he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. That term falling away, I don't usually try to act like I'm a Greek scholar, but I like this word. It's the Greek word skandalizo. From the, we get the word scandal from it. Uh, it was a big topic in the early church. So in the first two or three centuries of Christian history, before Christianity was legal in the Roman Empire, there was an ongoing debate that if you knew someone who was a Christian, but they had been arrested and tied to the stake and at the last minute had said, I renounce Jesus so they could save their lives. The question was, are they saved or are they lost? Does God forgive them for uh, being so afraid of death that they renounce him in, in front of men? Or, or, or does he say, nope, you've, you've renounced me forever. So I, I bring that up to say, this was something Jesus knew that the church would struggle with. And he's saying, I'm trying to help keep that from happening. I'm trying to help keep you from falling away from the faith. I want to help you stay faithful to the end. And he's telling them this as if to say, it's going to happen. You're going to have people who are part of your church body, who are part of your church family, who suddenly walk away. Now, thank God we don't live in the kind of culture where we face physical persecution, even imprisonment for our faith. But we still all know people who once seemed to be walking with Christ, and then they drifted off. Now, were those people, are those people just backslidden, or were they never really among us? Those are the two options. I don't believe someone can be thrown out of the kingdom once they're in. We don't know. I think the Lord would say, treat them like someone who needs to be one. Love them and pray for them, and seek to win them back, and leave their salvation up to God. But Jesus said that's going to happen. 
Verse two, he, he, he prophesies. He tells them, this is what you're going to face. He says, you will be put out of synagogues. And we read that and we skip right over that to the part where he says, you're going to be killed. But I think we underestimate how terrible it was as a Jew in that time to be kicked out of the synagogue. We look at that and we say, well, what, what difference does the synagogue make? You're Christian now. All that matters is the church. We don't, we, we don't understand how tied to, what, what a huge part of the community life, of your identity as a human being, as a, a member of a nation, a tribe, a family, it was to be part of the local synagogue. Because these Christians, they still kept going to the temple in that first generation. They still kept going to the synagogue. And then they would gather as Christians themselves. It had already started, by the way. You see in the story of the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus heals this blind man, and the Pharisees and scribes come and say, who healed you? And he says, well, you know, he tells them the story, and they don't like his version of the story, so they throw him out of the synagogue. So it's already started. And when I say this is a bigger deal than we realize, this is the best way I think I can wrap my mind around it. Imagine that even though you're innocent, everybody you know believes that you've sold state secrets to the Russians about our country, that you're a traitor to our country. Think about how isolated you would feel, how no one would want to be your friend, how you would feel like you, didn't have, you were a man or a woman without a country. And that's, I think, close to what it would feel like for a first century Jew to be thrown out of the synagogue. It would mean nobody would want anything to do with you, even your own family. And so this was a big thing for them to face. And then he says, the time is coming when whoever kills you will see it as serving God. We know that happened. That's Saul of Tarsus, right? That's a perfect description of the way Saul lived until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I'm sure there were others that, whose names we don't know. But this is a mentality that you and I have a hard time understanding. It's this idea that, I, uh, that if you're a religious person who wants to prove that you are especially devoted to God, killing people who are not of your faith is the best way to show it. Or even better, to kill someone who was part of your faith and has gone into what you consider to be heresy. Now that's an idea that is completely unbiblical, it's completely wrong, and yet that's what happens when you have religion without the gospel. And Jesus is warning them. They're going to come after you. They're going to see you as a target, as a way to prove themselves righteous before God. Now, I want, to note, I want you to note two things Jesus doesn't say. He's warning his disciples, when I leave, they're going to come after you. There's two things he doesn't say. Number one, he doesn't say, but don't worry, nothing bad's going to happen. Because he knows something bad will happen to many of them. Many of these guys are going to get arrested. Some of them are going to die martyrs' deaths. All of them are going to face persecution. And many other believers, those first three generations, and many believers even today. Jesus isn't going to promise something that's not true. He doesn't say, it's okay. Nothing bad will happen to you. He also doesn't say, hey, be careful. Stay out of danger. We want him to say those things because that makes it easier on us. And that's the way we think. And sometimes that thinking, that idea that, well, you know, if I follow Christ, I'll, I'll always be safe, that keeps us sometimes from fighting the good fight. Because sometimes doing the Lord's will is not safe. Sometimes doing the Lord's will puts us in harm's way. 
So that's the third thing about the Holy Spirit. He enables us to overcome persecution. He gives us the words we need to say, the power to overcome. Jesus goes on at the end of verse 4. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the fourth thing he's telling them is, believe me, it's better for you that I leave. The Holy Spirit is going to be better. Having the Holy Spirit is going to be better than having me with you in the flesh. Now that's an astonishing thing for Jesus to say. If you can imagine the person you love most in the world saying to you, I'm about to die, but don't worry, your life's going to be better once I'm gone. You'd say, there's no way. How can that be true? You are the most important person in my life. Jesus was that plus a thousand to these disciples. Not only did they love him, but they'd given up everything to follow him. And now he's saying, I'm going to be gone. How can our lives get better? Well, that just shows you how amazing the Holy Spirit is. That that God intended the Spirit to be that much of a blessing that it would be better to have the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus in the flesh. Now, the next question is, why did Jesus have to go away for the Spirit to come? Couldn't God have sent the Holy Spirit and left Jesus on earth? Yes, He could have. Here's the reason why Jesus had to go away, though. The atonement at the cross. Jesus dying in our place. That created a new reality. That created a new reality for us. You see, in the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit show up sometimes, like uh, in the story of Elijah, and he kills the prophets of Baal, and then he goes up to Ahab and says, hey, it hadn't rained in seven years, but I'm going to pray that it will rain. And Ahab goes, whatever, and and Elijah prays, and then a rainstorm comes. Remember? A rainstorm comes. I, I, I shortened the story. But Elijah, it says, the Spirit came upon him, and he outran Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel. So we see things like that happen, where the Spirit of God just shows up in someone's life and they do something they're not otherwise able to do. But up until now, there's never been a time or a person or a place, aside from Jesus, where a person had the Holy Spirit in them all the time. And that's the reality that happened once the cross occurred. Because what happened at the cross was the justification that we got through the death of Jesus means suddenly... Our bodies, our lives are a proper home for God to dwell in. We weren't able to have that kind of relationship with Him before. But the death of Jesus brought about that ability for us to have the Holy Spirit with us 24-7. And if you are saved, that's the reality for you. I'm sorry, I I have tons of respect for our charismatic brothers, but they're wrong when they say that you need a second blessing. The Holy Spirit comes into the life of a Christian the day you are a, are, are a believer, the day you are redeemed. Now, he says, what, what does the Holy Spirit do when he comes into your life? Why will your life be better? Well, because he will bring conviction. Doesn't sound very good, does it? 
It's a legal term. It's the spirit acting like a prosecuting attorney. Again, that doesn't sound very good, but why? What, what is he specifically convicting us of? He lists three things. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is the charge we can't deny. Righteousness is the standard we can't meet. And judgment is the consequences we can't escape. He's convicting the world about those three things. He's convicting the world that you have done wrong. There is a standard that you can't meet. There are consequences coming and you can't escape them and therefore you need the gospel. That conviction not only rescues us, it enables us to rescue others. So let's go through those just one by one, one by one, when it says he convicts us of sin. If you've grown up in church, you probably have heard this term, you've probably experienced this, but just in case, again, picture a prosecuting attorney. What does an attorney do when he's prosecuting someone for a crime? He's very specific, or she's very specific. Here's what you've done. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence. I charge you with murder, with theft, with, uh, with embezzlement, whatever the case may be. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. See, on our own, we're good at self-justifying. Remember when you were a kid and you'd get in a fight with your, your sibling and you might just haul off and smack them. I mean, just really wail on them. But in your mind, you were perfectly justified because he looked at me. And you'd believe that. You believe every word of it, that you are justified in giving your little brother a bloody lip or, you know, a black eye because he looked at you. And your mom or dad comes along and says, no. That doesn't work. That's, that is not a justification for what you've done. And that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. He convicts us. When we think we're, we're righteous in our own eyes, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, let me show you what you've really done. Let me show you your sin as it really is. Another great analogy is, think about Nathan the prophet confronting David. King David did a horrible thing. First of all, he lusted after another man's wife. Then he took her. And then, in order to cover up his crime, he had her husband, one of his best soldiers, by the way, one of his 30 mighty men, had her husband murdered on the battlefield. That's awful. And yet, he was going to get away with it because he's the king. And he probably even convinced himself, you know, as king, I deserve certain prerogatives. And then Nathan comes to him and he tells him the story of a man who all he had in the world was one little ewe lamb, and that was his prized possession. It was like a daughter to him. And there was a rich man next door who had a whole flock of sheep, and the rich man came and took that one lamb away from the poor man and butchered it and gave it to his guest. And David is angry about that injustice, and he says, this man must die. And what does Nathan say? You are the man. You're the one who did that. And David's eyes are opened up, and he goes, oh my goodness, I'm the worst sinner I've ever seen. I, I had no idea. And to his credit, David repents. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Without the Holy Spirit, we go on in our sin. We never repent. We never get healed. He convicts us about righteousness. Now, it's a confusing wording. He says, about righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Well, what does that mean? I think it means two things. When Jesus died, for those, for those hours that he was in the tomb, his enemies could console themselves by saying he was just a sham. He was, he was, all of his miracles were tricks. He wasn't what he claimed to be. But when he rose again, and especially when he ascended to the Father, that was vindication. Nobody could deny that he was the Son of God. 
His standard of righteousness was set. Not only was it a vindication, it was saying, okay, now that I'm gone, the Holy Spirit is here to testify to righteousness. I'm not here anymore. When I was here, people could compare themselves to me in the flesh and see that they don't measure up. I'm gone now, but the Holy Spirit is here to show people the true standard and to show them where they're falling short. He convicts the world about sin and about righteousness, about that standard we can't meet, and then about judgment. The Spirit constantly warns us. The message of the Holy Spirit to us is constantly, hey, the world has a way, but if you choose the way of the world, just be aware you're on a losing side. You're on a side that is, that is headed toward destruction. It may work out for you in the short term, but in the end you'll regret it. So turn back now. Uh, this may be, a, a, again, another bad analogy, but I, I think about uh, people who lived in Germany in the 1930s when, when Hitler came to power. And, and I'm sure, I'm not trying to justify anybody joining the Nazi party, but I'm sure there was a temptation at the very least, even if you were a perfectly solid citizen and didn't agree with everything the Nazis did, but there was a, there was a temptation to say, I'll just go along to get along. Because it seems like these people are going to be in power forever. I don't want to be persecuted like those poor Jews are. But if somebody came to you and said, hey, you need to understand something. In just a few years, the Allies are going to be on our, on our, on our territory, and they're going to be liberating this country, and, and Hitler's going to kill himself, and all his generals are going to be tried as war criminals, and uh, this, is, this is coming to an end soon. At that point, you'd say, oh, okay, well, I won't join them then. It's not going to pay off in the end. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It may seem like the best short-term decision to go the way of the world, to do things the world's way. And in some ways in the short term, it does pay off. The Holy Spirit keeps coming back and saying, yeah, but there's a day of judgment. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that this success and this prosperity you're enjoying and this popularity and this approval that you gain by doing things the world's way, don't fool yourself into thinking that's forever. Because there is a day when it comes to an end. Turn back now before it's too late. Finally, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So just to review, Jesus in His farewell discourse, He says, I'm going to send you another helper. He's going to come alongside you. He's going to be with you. He's going to remind you of everything that I've said. He's going to prepare you for persecution so that you'll be able to overcome whatever the enemy throws at you. He'll be better than even having me with you in the flesh. And then this fifth thing, He's going to be your guide. He will be your guide in the darkness. He will, he's the one that knows the way, and He'll take you there. I think about when um, Carrie and I had only been a, married a couple of years. We were living in Fort Worth. It's when I was in seminary. Um, we decided to take a trip to Chicago. That's where one of Carrie's sisters lived. And uh, we were flying out of Love Field. Now, we didn't have much money, so this was the first time we'd flown together. And I had a friend, a fellow student, who said, oh, I can get you to the airport. Now, we were taking an early morning flight, so we had to get up real, real early. It was dark. He drives us all the way from Fort Worth to Dallas, and we're driving and we're driving. If you've, if you've been in those two towns, you know that's not, you know, that's a little bit of a haul. 
And we're driving in the dark, and we're talking, and we're laughing, and all of a sudden, I say something. And he says, wait, you're going to Love Field? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're not going to DFW? I said, no, we're going to Love Field. And he goes, well, I have no idea where that is. Now, none of us have a cell phone. Even if we did, there wasn't Google Maps back then. There wasn't any of that stuff. It's pre-dawn. Nothing's open. What are we going to do? So here's what we did. We literally, at every stoplight, we rolled down our window, tried to get people to roll down their windows, and said, do you know where Love Field is? <laughs> and about the fifth per they thought we were nuts, about the fifth person, I think it was a, a garbage truck driver, literally, he said, yeah, and he gave us directions. And we got there. I mean, we had to sprint through that airport to get to the plane, but we got there. And I think about that when I think about this idea of the Holy Spirit as our guide, because when you're trying to reach some place, would you rather have a map or a guide? I'd rather have a guide. A guide that knows where he's going. Unlike my friend, for all, I mean, good friend, got up early in the morning for me, but he didn't know where he was going. But the Holy Spirit knows where to go, and he's with you and he'll guide you. In verses 12 and 13, those are confusing. He says, I've got all these things to say to you, but I can't tell you now. The spirit of truth will come, and he'll guide you into it. Some people misinterpret that. Some people use that to say, well, you've got the truth of the scriptures, but Jesus says there's going to be more truth later, and so I think I've just got this word from the Holy Spirit that I'm going to give to you. Be very careful with that, okay? I'm not saying the Spirit can't speak through people today. I think He probably does. But I think what verses 12 and 13 are talking about is not that you and I are just going to be walking around spouting off scriptural, uh, spiritual knowledge that's not found in the Bible. He's talking to the 11 disciples. He's saying, I've told you a lot of things. I can't tell you everything. The Holy Spirit will come and tell you the rest. He's talking to the people who wrote the New Testament. This is him saying, I believe, this is him saying, after I'm gone, Spirit's going to come in and tell you the rest, and you'll be able to write it all down and teach it to the people who need to hear it. So this is not giving us permission to walk around acting like we speak for God. This is a testimony that the, the apostles are the ones that, trend, that, that pass along the truth of God to us through the Scriptures. Now, does that mean that if somebody comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, you should immediately dismiss them out of hand? I know some pastors who say that. I don't think so. Because just like if God wanted to, He could give one of us the ability to lay hands on a sick person and make them well, He can also choose to give somebody a word to speak to you or to me. If somebody comes to you and says, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have to share this with you, I think you should listen. But I think you should, after you hear what they have to say, First thing you need to do is say, does this agree with what the Bible says? Because if anything they say doesn't match what the Scriptures say, you can dismiss it. God is not going to contradict Himself. He, what He said back then is what He's going to say today. He doesn't change His mind. He's not a human. So, remember that and be humble. I, I want to point out one more thing uh, that Jesus says here in verse 14. He says, yeah, he'll guide you, and then he'll glorify me. The, the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. Remember that. And here's why that's important. 
Here's another no, way to know if the Holy Spirit has given you something to tell somebody else or, or has, is inspiring you to do something for Him. If it glorifies Jesus and humbles you, that's a good sign that it's the Spirit. Both of those. If it glorifies Jesus and humbles you. If it makes much of you, it's probably not of the Holy Spirit. Because He's not in the business of making us famous. He's in the business of making Jesus famous. That's a good test. If, is the Spirit guiding me? Well, does it glorify Jesus? Does it help others to know Him? Does it make His name great? And does it make me feel humble? Then it probably is. So here's the biggest takeaway of everything we've said tonight. Because of the Spirit of God, we have confidence that we'll have the knowledge we need when we need it. We'll have the power we need when we need it. We'll have the conviction we need when we need it. We don't have a roadmap. We have a guide. If He gave us a roadmap and that's it, then we could feel proud of ourselves for getting there. But no, we have the guide who tells us where to turn. Um, this is why we can have confidence. God is not a cruel God who gives us these impossible standards and then says, good luck. He sends us the power to accomplish His will. Again, remember, we will never know all things this side of heaven, but we know Him, and that's enough. And if we keep in step with Him, with the Holy Spirit, as it says in Galatians 6, we will bear fruit. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for loving us enough to give us Your Word and to give us Your Spirit. And between the two of those, we have everything we need to live the life You've called us to live. The Spirit and the Word, and yes, the church too. I pray, Lord, that we would glorify You in all that we do, that we would be humbled, and that we would make Your name known. For it's in Your name we pray. Amen.